No. All right, so now let me start this live stream. Okay, let's spin that.
Bismillah. Oh, there it is. There's the link. Good. All right. Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Inshallah everyone is doing well this Sunday evening. And as I mentioned last week, this will probably be our last session um, this calendar year. So, alhamdulillah, we've uh, reached the end of the calendar year. And uh, subhanAllah, we went into 2020 with all kinds of hopes that it was a new decade and who knows what it's going to bring and so on and so forth. And we found in it what we found in it, Allah Musta'an, Allah knows best. May Allah help us to be patient and wise in dealing with his decree. So alhamdulillah, but we're, we're here at the end of um, at the end of this time, at the end of this year, you know. So Bismillah, this last reading here is called The Place of Isnad in Islamic Education, Demystifying Tradition. So I'm going to read from it as usual. We're going to see how far we get. I might end up skipping some pieces. But the, um, the general idea here is that in certain circles, you will hear a lot of conversation around Isnad, a lot of conversation around Ijaza, and the importance of Ijaza. You might hear that even from teachers at the Majlis. And so I wanted to do this reading in order to um, shed a little bit of light, some perspective, may agree or disagree with certain points, but nonetheless, it's good to um, have a little bit deeper conversation around it. I was also looking for something, quite frankly, that we could finish in one session. So hopefully this will be it. And it's kind of related to the one before it. So bismillah. Uh, as many of you probably know, Dr. Abdullah ibn Hamid Ali is a professor at Zaytuna College. Um, some people may... I don't know how to say this other than to say that he's taken some positions of late that um, may be upsetting or problematic to certain people. Um, but nonetheless, I think some of his writings are uh, of benefit, inshallah. And, you know, if we left everything that uh, from people that we disagreed with on certain issues, then we would lose a lot. So let's just go to the paper. The place of Isnad in Islamic education demystifying tradition. During the last few decades of the 20th century, Muslims in a number of English-speaking countries witnessed both the resurgence of and, in, and introduction to what has been termed traditional Islam. Despite having more than one iteration, the traditional Islam movement, as articulated by its main exponents in the West, represented a renewed commitment to and revival of the four classical Sunni schools of law, Hanafi, Maniki, Shafi'i, and Hanbali, the orthodox schools of theology, Ash'ari, and Maturidi, as well as the appropriation of Sufi quote-unquote practices and or induction into one of the law-based Sufi orders, which oftentimes entailed offering fealty to a shaykh. 
He's giving a general definition. Don't take this to mean that he uh, follows that for himself or uh, even that, you know, like it's a broad blanket. This is oftentimes what this was meant for. But even this last part, uh, I would say like as well as appropriation of Sufi practices is probably broader than to be actually inducted into a order. Um, in any case, that's what this term has been used for. Notably, traditionalism stood at odds with and in response to the reformist efforts of certain Sanafi scholars who viewed uncritical imitation taqlid of the four schools, Ash'ari, Maturidi, theology, and Sufism as major obstacles to reviving their ideas of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So what's the, the note here is that this understanding was is in contrast to the understanding of um, broad swath of quote-unquote Salafi scholars, uh, which won't always hold those same positions and might differ on them. This is in addition to Salafi calls to eschew any issue any hadith unworthy of the designation Sahih, authentic, or Hassan, good. One of the leading Salafi scholars, Muhammad Nasr al-Din al-Albani, who died in 1999, even carried out a radical re-evaluation of the major hadith canon, seemingly attempting to cleanse the canon of any heretical accretions. Uh, this paragraph we could probably spend the entire class on, but I think the, a lot of what could be said here probably has been said at different times and places and gatherings that we've had. So. Uh, we won't go into it in a whole lot of detail at this particular moment, but those are just broad uh, descriptions of trends in thought. In reaction to these challenges, traditional Muslims reasserted their commitment to the classical schools of theology, jurisprudence, and virtue ethics. But they also attempted to undermine the credibility of their Salafi opponents by underscoring that their educational credentials were insufficient for any valid claim of representing Muslim orthodoxy. In pursuit of this goal, traditional Muslims highlighted the role and importance of isnad, i.e. the chain of transmission. If a person was unable to prove that he or she possessed a written ijazah or authorization from a qualified teacher to teach the particular subject one was teaching, the person was declared unworthy of serious attention. These ideas ignited a race to amass as many ijazas as students had the capacity and opportunity to do so. This ijazah craze became so pervasive that even non-Salafis were spared uh, from traditional Muslim scorn of those who studied Islam in Western and Western styled universities in and outside of the Muslim world. So it became like this um, ijazah craze where if you don't have this ijazah, you have no business teaching. And that became like, okay, so we're this camp and they're this camp. And the distinguishing factor between the two is that we have ijazas, basically. We'll see how this develops. In this essay, I assert that the focus of ijaza and isnad constitutes a preference of form over substance, that isnad has been decontextualized from its roots and misappropriated by its contemporary champions, and that many have confused the two mediums of transmission with being genuine methods of instruction. To verify these claims, we must speak about the classical meaning and purpose of isnad as a tool for establishing orthodoxy the conditions that gave birth to this concern, the major factions vying for orthodoxy, whether or not ijazah was the criteria used by scholars to determine a person's fitness to teach Islam, 
and conclude with a discussion of the role of the teacher in classical Islamic education. So this is what he's going to try to tackle in these 20 pages. He's going to try to tackle this in these 20 pages. It's a lot. I'm reevaluating my thing about trying to finish this in an hour, but inshallah, we'll see. Uh, maybe I can summarize some of this. To avoid confusion, tradition, traditionist, traditionalist, and the traditional. So basically he's going to, uh, a big part of the problem here is what do the words mean? And do they change, what the, does what they mean change depending on who's using it? Meaning does one person use it one way and does another person use it another way? If so, then how does that convolute the discussion? Um, basically what's gonna be said here is that a tradition, a tradition, an A, a tradition, is often used to mean a hadith, okay, a hadith, and, or, or a narration, and more specifically, the hadith of the Prophet them if we say a tradition of the, a prophetic tradition, for example. Then traditionists would be muhadithun, muhadithun. Basically, the scholars of hadith, the scholars of these traditions. Traditionalists uh, is harder. He gives one translation of it here. Um, you can roll with it. Traditionalist is like he would, he, he, the way he does it, finds it here, is a person who is part of. Ahlun Hadith from the Monday night class. You may remember this idea in the in the development of Islamic legal theory of the camp of Ahlun Hadith and the camp of Ahlun Ra'i, the people of Hadith and the people of Ra'i of, of um, informed opinion. And uh, traditionalists could refer to those people who are from Ahlun Hadith. This is one possible meaning. And the traditional, or uh, in, in contrast to rationalists, Part of the problem with all these words is that, again, people will use them in different ways. We're not, they don't really actually bear that heavy of a consequence on the main point of the paper. So I don't want to get too caught up in it. And, you know, we could just like sit here and talk about this one, use it this way, and that one, use it this way. And this is the problem with it as well. But we're never going to finish the paper. So uh, we won't go with that. Traditional Muslim applies to contemporary proponents of what has become normative Islam for the majority of its scholars, i.e., Adherence to Ash'ari Mathudi theology, the adoption of one of the four schools of jurisprudence, and the acceptance of law-based Sufism. Law-based is important. Law-based Sufism. Um, traditional Muslims largely argue that the greatest proof for the orthodoxy of their views is that Muslims around the world have viewed and practiced Islam in the way they see it for more than a millennium. It's true. They provide themselves on following the opinions of the medieval experts and see the Isnad and Ijazah as signifiers of one's fitness to teach and transmit Islam in its purest form. So, um, so traditional Muslims will often use tradition here, not to refer to hadith, but to refer to like the body of what became Sunni orthodoxy, kind of like the Turah, the Turah, the, the heritage of the Muslims, the tradition. Whereas the other camps, traditionist and traditionalist, will often use it 
to refer to a hadith. So he says that here. Traditional Muslims emphasize the customary connotation of tradition, while traditionists and traditionalists cling to the meaning of tradition as the oral account uh, or hadith. Um, he goes into kind of like a thing here about reason and revelation. And um, I mean, traditional Muslims won't have any issue with reason and revelation. Re re reason will be used to engage with revelation. Traditionists even still would not have an issue with um, reason and revelation. They would uh, give a position of prominence to revelation, but that doesn't mean that reason is thrown out or it doesn't matter or it's not being used or whatever. Um, so, you know, we can kind of skip that. Point here is that there, there's a focus on the text, but there's also um, an application of reason to the text. So now we get to the all important question. What is Islam? What is it? Like we're using this word, what is it? And what is Ijazah and how do they relate? So here we go. The Shafi'i scholar Ibn Asakir relates in his book, Tariq Dimashq, the following conversation between the Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid and an unnamed crypto-infidel. What a word, crypto-infidel. Zindiq, summoned for execution. The infidel says, why are you going to execute me, O commander of the faithful? He says, to relieve people of you. He says, then what will you do about the 1,000 hadiths I have fabricated against the messenger of Allah? Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There is not a single letter of them uttered by the Messenger of God. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Rashid said, And what will you do, O enemy of God, about Abu Ishaq al-Fizari and Abdullah ibn Mubarak? They will sift through them and extract them letter by letter. He says, Even if this report may not convey the precise details of this exchange, this story underscores that fabrication was a significant source of anxiety for early traditionists. The pioneer community had undergone great political upheaval beginning with the death of the Prophet Muhammad The Prophet's companions disputed over his temporal successor that was followed by the wars of apostasy, the assassination of the third caliph and the resultant civil war. And then the second civil war which ended with Umayyad hegemony. In the midst of this, each faction sought to bolster its authority by appeals to prophetic traditions, putatively reinforcing the validity of each group's religio-political views. Consequently, a significant amount of apocryphal content found its way into the prophetic tradition so basically in the early period there was a lot of conflict and that conflict led to people trying to back themselves up with hadith right like you see this now someone wants to um like when 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 do you always find all of the questionable hadith about the relationship between a man and a woman is when the husband is trying to put pressure on his wife and when do you find the the questionable hadith all of a sudden surface about the relationship between children and their parents is when the mother is trying to enforce some authority over her kids. And when do you, it's like always the, the random hadith that is questionable always pops up all of a sudden when someone needs it as a means by which to enforce whatever kind of like authority they're trying to enforce, okay? So that happened then, that happens now. Of course, then the difference is that that's the actual era of Tedween. That's the era of um, 
recording, I guess. It's like, that's the time when the hadith were being written down, being sifted through. So it's, a, it's you know, different. Now someone makes up a hadith, you just check the books and it, that, that time is over. But um, in that period, it was, it was significant and people were fabricating things. It's like disinformation and misinformation, you know. The people created Twitter bots in order to push Russian propaganda, whatever it might be, right? So, uh, so what are you going to do about it? According to Muhammad ibn Sirin, the people did not ask for the isnad until political strife erupted. After that, the isnad of a hadith was demanded in order to discover who was a proponent of the prophetic way so that his hadith could be taken and who was a proponent of heresy so that his hadith could be eschewed. In response to this phenomenon, a number of traditionists identifying themselves as Ahlul Hadith or the traditionalists appeared with the aim of preserving the content of religious orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Inspired by Quranic stipulations for acceptable religious testimony and experiential suitability, traditionalists established what they believed to be objective criteria for ensuring that the teachings of Islam would be protected from heterodox accretions. The primary method for, the, for determining the difference between a genuine hadith and one which was spurious was the examination of the moral integrity and retention capacity of each transmitter at, each, at every stage in the chain of transmission, which they termed the isnad. So what is the isnad? The isnad is the chain of transmission that goes from the person who's hearing the hadith to the Prophet This is the isnad. And they would use this isnad as a means by which they can ascertain the reliability of this attribution to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It wouldn't be long before one would hear calls like the one made by the aforementioned Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, al-Isnad min al-Din, so if it were not for the isnad it's part of the deen and if it had not been for the isnad uh, people would have said whatever they wanted to say. They would have said whatever they wanted to say. And Muhammad ibn Sirin is re similarly reported to have said, Very important statement. Verily, this knowledge is religion, it's deen. So consider well those from whom you take your religion. So this is now like the beginning of the discourse around Isnad. When does Isnad become like a popular discourse and does it matter? and stuff, um, this is when it starts to come up. Uh, then he says here, qualifying the two quotes, so the traditional Muslims of today often misappropriate Ibn Mubarak's statement about Isnad as a proof for the requirement of any person to be held by a religious, to be a religious authority, to be able to list his sheikhs or highlight his ijazas, or at least to bless the ears of the public with one's Isnad for the popular hadith of the merciful ones, al-Rahimun, uh, so basically what he's saying here is that that isnad was a means used by the hadith scholars to ascertain the reliability of a hadith 
and it had like conditions and ways that you would deal with it and you know each person involved and specialists can analyze it and come to a conclusion but that like to use that for everything doesn't like that's not what it was made for he's gonna you could respond to that in certain ways but uh, he's gonna kind of bring up more and i'll share my thoughts on it soon uh, so, you know, they, they use this isnad to know the reliability of the hadith and uh, all the different factions kind of like agreed on that, that that's a good thing to do. Uh, it's a reasonable thing to do to use this method. Um, so nobody had an issue with isnad, but that was its context. Okay. So then what is an ijazah? What is an ijazah? Where does it originate? So it originates first. The idea of ijazah first is initially within the realm of hadith one of the ways that a person gains uh, a, a capacity for narrating hadith okay so the isnad relates to the hadith itself but now the person is a student of hadith how do they become qualified to teach a hadith or to read a hadith and um, that would actually come from a number of different ways one of them, that's what's listed here there's direct transmission from a teacher to a student, Sama'a. There's reading a compiler's work to him while he or she attentively listens, Ard, Sard, Qira'a. There's surrendering a copy of it, Munawala. So the Sheikh has a copy of the book of Hadith that's reliable and he gives it to the student. That would be Munawala. <clears throat> this is a way also to become reliable in the transmission. And then there's Ijaza, Ijaza which is when the author of the book gives permission to the reader or student to transmit the book's contents to others. And again, this is initially in the realm of hadith. So not in the realm of everything. It specifically relates to hadith because the hadith as it's being passed generation to generation has to be scrupulously analyzed and verified that every single letter is right. Every single harakah is right, so on and so forth. So these become then different methods for that to be passed from generation to generation. So ijazah falls in there initially. And there's other ones, mukataba, i'lam, wasiya, wijada, different areas. If you're uh, like update here shows. <laughs> um, all of those are going to be like ways that you can get hadith, okay? Um, and most of them think considered ijazah to be an acceptable way there you know, uh, that the, the sheikh could give ijazah this permission to the student. When it comes specifically to narrating hadith, this is what these comments are about. Okay, so what he's really kind of like emphasizing here is where do these terms initially, initially originate? They initially originate in the realm and world of hadith scholarship. Uh, that's like the primary place of isnad and ijazah. Of course, also in Quran, in qira'ah, uh, the recitation and the memorization of the Quran, but specifically, this is being hashed out a lot in the in the realm of Hadith. So you give some details on that; they're not as relevant to this uh, conversation. Here we go. What we notice from the above is that ijaza is merely a means among other means to establish isnad in the view of Muslim traditionists, meaning the muhaddithun, the people of Hadith, scholars of Hadith. As a part of the process of authenticating Islamic content, it served as a quality control mechanism. The subject of the content being preserved via ijazah 
was originally the prophetic tradition. However, once scholars abandoned the campaign to compile all the hadiths of the Prophet towards the close of the 11th century, the focus turned from the preservation of his words to the preservation of the books containing his words. Abandoned here doesn't mean it's negative. It just means that that work had kind of reached its conclusion. And now the effort goes from actual hadith to the books that were known to carry the, the, the hadith. Uh, consequently, the same eight aforementioned means of preservation were employed, with ijazah being one of its most important means. This is why the ijazah isnad tradition was also employed to preserve exegetical, mystical, and other non-hadith works. So this is now it starts to, it moves from the hadith itself to the books of hadith. And then when it becomes about the books, it starts to spread into other areas. So like you wouldn't have your isnad maybe and ijazah doesn't go to... Uh, I mean, eventually it goes to Bukhari, but it's basically about the book of Bukhari. Rather than being about like each one about the Prophet and then that's not exactly what I'm trying to, it's, it's, I don't want to misword that, but it's about the book of Bukhari. And so then it can become about the book of like Abu Hanifa or At-Tahawi or whoever else it might be in all these different periods. Prior to the printing press, all official copies of books were written by hand, and those who desired authentic versions of those books were generally expected to study their contents with their compilers or their successors who communicated the corresponding isnads back to the original authors. So this is one of the major points here, is that how did you know that a book was reliable? I'm going to pick up in my hands a book that's written in 600 after Hijra, and I'm living in 900. How do I know that this book is reliable? And there's no printing press. So the way that th that would be known is through this isnad and through this ijazah that goes back to the book itself. So I've copied the book by hand from someone who copied the book by hand from someone who copied the book by hand back to the author, right? So now I have, this is an authentication process in the print in, in the copying of the manuscripts because uh, otherwise, how do you do that? You can't just like print it and compare you know, we'll take a printed version from here and there and we'll get on a plane and we'll go and collect them all and we'll compare them. It's not going to happen that way, right? So they, they have this isnad that will go back to the particular book. I hope this is clear so far. Uh, that is to say that neither, uh, that is to say that neither ijazah nor any of the aforementioned seven means for establishing isnad or transmitting hadiths were looked upon as methods of instruction or pedagogical, pedagogical tools for determining one's qualifications to teach. Rather, the use of the term ijazah to indicate one's fitness to teach Islam was a much later convention, which many today have confused with both the isnad and the ijazah for transmitting the contents of books, thereby ensuring that those books were authentic copies of their originals. So what he's saying is now this idea of an isnad or an ijazah as a permission to teach, that wasn't what it was initially for. It was initially for ascertaining the reliability of the copy of the text that's in front of you. Initially, ascertaining the reliability of the hadith. Then after the hadith, the, the reliability of the text that's in front of you. So you could have a reliable text in front of you and don't have any business teaching it, right? But later on then, this ijazah becomes a, even, even later on, it becomes uh, about, then like a permission to teach in some circles. I'm just going to get to. 
In this regard, the 15th century polymath Jalaluddin Suyuti had the following to say. Suyuti dies, I think, 9-11 after Hijra to get an idea of where this falls in the Muslim calendar. So 9-11 after Hijra, I believe it was. Authorization ijazah from a sheikh is not a prerequisite for being allowed to impart knowledge and spread benefit. So anyone who knows of his own qualification may do so even if no one authorizes him. This is the view of the early forebearers and the pious ancestors. This likewise applies in every science in imparting knowledge and issuing fatwa. This contravenes the view of the simple-minded, Aghbiya. Suyuti was very <coughs> strong with his language. Who imagined that to be a prerequisite. The only reason the scholars introduced authorization, ijazah, was that entry-level learners and their like who desire to learn from another, in most cases do not know the person's qualifications in light of their own inadequacy. And searching for qualification before taking instruction is a prerequisite. So authorization ijazah was treated like a testimony of one's qualification from an authorized sheikh. So what is he saying? He's saying that the ijazah to teach was not a requirement and is not a requirement. That what's required for someone to teach is for them to actually know what they're talking about. Okay. But because that's difficult for a non-specialist to know, Right. So like if someone's in the world of Islamic studies and they sit with someone else who's in the world of Islamic studies and they have a conversation and they debate and they go back and forth and they talk about some things, they can start to get a feel for where this person is at. They won't know exactly like exactly which text they've studied and so on and so forth, but they can tell. You can tell like, OK, this person has a familiarity with the library. They have an understanding of the relationship between the different time periods and the text and how these things developed. They have an understanding of what you can say and what you can't say and why. And, you know, you can start to get a feel for it. But someone who's not like they're just a beginner, they're not going to be able to do that. So they came. So he's what a Suyuti is saying, Rahimahullah, is that they use this ijazah to signify for the public that a particular individual is qualified to teach. So it's basically like a, you know, it's a degree. It's like a degree. This person, they have some level of formal qualification that allows them to be able to be in a position of teaching. And so then it facilitates upon the learner. It facilitates for the learner finding someone who's qualified. But for the person who's actually teaching, it's not a really that such a huge thing. <clears throat> Maybe this is a good place to say it, but, you know, this is why, like, a lot of the people that we met in Egypt, in Al-Azhar, and around Al-Azhar, like, as a broader institution, not just as the university, um, not all of them really cared for this whole ijazah thing a whole lot, you know. Some of them were really about it, you know, they want to get this ijazah, they want to get this isnad, whatever it might be, but many of them were not. And even we were in a, a large gathering one time, not so large, but in a decent-sized gathering one time, with Sheikh Ahmed Taha Rayyan, uh, Hafidullah, the Sheikh of the Manikis in Egypt, a great, great scholar. Um, and someone asked him about this whole issue of ijazah and isnad and stuff. And he told him, he's like, look, you're going to the University of Al-Azhar and taking exams and studying for exams and following a curriculum and passing classes and that's your ijazah. 
don't worry about all these things like going to a person reading one hadith to a hadith getting a piece of paper that says you have ijazah from them forget all that stuff do your work study properly review properly learn what you need to learn that's your ijazah don't worry about it and he's like huge figure uh not not some uh you know uh really really big figure and uh, so and there's many others who are similar it doesn't mean that one shouldn't care uh, it's 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 nice you know like alhamdulillah we have some ijazat and different things and we try to get more and stuff but i'm not going to we have to be careful not to convolute things so just because i sat with someone and i understand and i i heard them read the text of hadith doesn't necessarily mean that i have an understanding of the text of hadith you know i i can listen to the 40 hadith being read and not really understand it and so or the or the shama'il or bukhari or whatever it might be so learning is more than just these kind of like uh i don't want to say like shows of of piety or whatever it might be but what it is in a sense like there's more to learning than that someone could have ijazah or isnad and like everything on earth and it could mean nothing and actually at the end the conclusion of this paper he kind of says that there's a uh an ending comment by Sheikh Ninui, who basically concurs with what Sheikh Abdullah says here. And then he says, that doesn't mean we shouldn't care about Isnad. He says, my 10-year-old son, he has uh, over 100 ijazas from different scholars and stuff. He's like, we care about it, but he's 10 years old. It's not like we're not going to believe that he's a scholar because he has these ijazas. But you want that connection, you want the blessing of being connected to the people before you and so on and so forth. But you still have to actually study. Meshi, enough. In other words, not having an ijazah did and does not mean that a person cannot be an expert on Islam or any other science for that matter by another means. That is, a degree in Islamic law or theology from a modern university in the Islamic world, while not constituting a traditional ijazah, is still an ijazah in the sense of constituting a valid authorization to teach Islam. This is contrary to what con many contemporary Muslims understand. Neither the isnad nor ijazah are pedag pedagogical tools for learning or methods intended to ensure that students have mastered the historical teachings of Islam. Ijazah-based study of text is not even necessarily superior to independent study in the Western Academy. Neither tradition necessarily guarantees depth of knowledge nor complete comprehension or mastery, nor do either guarantee that learners will overcome the hubris and disdain toward non-initiates, which Ghazali stated to be a natural outgrowth of being a scholar. So he's saying that it doesn't guarantee something, generally speaking. I would say on this that there is, um, there is a little bit, yeah, I mean, so, you know, like someone can graduate with a degree, they had a 2.0 GPA. Someone can graduate with a degree, they had a 4.0 GPA. Someone can graduate with a degree where they have a 3.8 GPA, but not because they actually know the material, just because they know how to take exams and write essays and pass things. Um, someone can have ijazah because they sit with someone who gives ijazah very easily. Someone can have ijazah because they're making it sound like they have more than they actually have, which is very common. Um, there's a lot of details to it. I would say one of the things that is, I believe, true is that there are particular types of ijazas that if a person has them, they do actually signify a serious level of learning and they are better than anything else. 
But that is the ijazah of a specific person to a specific person for particular things. Okay, it's not a general ijazah. So for example, I had a friend who studied a middle level Shafi'i fiqh text with a senior scholar week after week, line by line with questions and research and review and discussion and debate and so on and so forth from the beginning of the text to the end of the text. And the Sheikh gave him ijazah in that text to that he knows it and he can teach it. That's a strong ijazah. The ijazah of like someone who sat in a class, even maybe they sat in the class, but they never really did research. They didn't ask questions. They didn't engage. Even that's not as strong. You know, even stronger would be someone who s spent time with a senior person of knowledge and studied text after text after text with them and spent a long time with them and was in their company and debated things and questioned things and they conversed, they conversed about it and they read together and they spent a long time like that. And then at the end of that period, the Sheikh says, you know, this person, they spent a long time with me. I give them ijazah and everything that I have and they're qualified you know, scholar of XYZ field. And that that's like the one that really matters. All the other ones are various levels of things going on, even degrees, there's various levels of things going on. Um, they are meant to provide some level of clarity on qualification, but they don't necessarily 100% um, confirm it. We'll put it that way. What is Islamic education? All right. Let me see how much is left. All right. Wow, this, I don't know how time is going so fast this time. I doubt you guys feel the same, but I feel that way. <laughs> what is Islamic education? In the foregoing, I've argued that neither isnad nor ijazah are methods of instruction, but are rather means of preserving religious content. So they're not methods of instruction per se. They're means of preserving content. I've also highlighted in the aforementioned quoted by Suyuti that receiving authorization from one sheikh to teach what, ha what one has confidently mastered is not absolutely essential. It was, however, the norm to make those who received formal training in the Islamic sciences more easily identifiable to the laity. With that aside, no one could deny the importance of knowing how and when a person becomes a legitimate authority on Islam. All right, so this is the question that still stands. How do we know when a person is a legitimate authority? Okay, that's not gonna be the method. Maybe there's some other method, but we still need to know the answer to that question. Um, Uh, the Prophet said, that knowledge is attained, knowledge is acquired only through informed instruction. The famed commentator on Imam Bukhari Sahih ibn Hajar al Asqalani says of this statement, what it means is that the only considerable knowledge is what is taken from the Prophets and their heirs via informed instruction. We take it from these proper sources in a proper way. That's what actual learning is. Um, they said, Suleiman ibn Musa, he said, this is a famous quote. It gets repeated all the time. It used to be said, do not learn the Quran from those who learn it from written collections, mushafiyin, and do not carry knowledge from those who learn from books, suhafiyin. But don't, you know, don't, 
the person you're learning from should have taken from people. Uh, and especially in the Quran, this is very true. They have to have taken from a sheikh who recites properly with a lot of um, rigor uh, back to the Prophet Wasallam. Uh, there's a little poem, it's kind of cute About like what happens if you don't do that Basically there was a guy Who read a hadith About black seed being the cure for everything But he misread it uh, He missed like one of the dots And so he read it as a black viper Instead of a black seed So he had some pain in his eyes And he got the black viper And he put it on his eyes And he ended up blind Because he read the text But he didn't read the text properly Right? And out of his dedication to the hadith and so on and so forth, he went and he did it, but it wasn't actually a hadith. And, you know, this is, you, you can, under, it's like, a, it's a funny story. It seems like it came out of a true scenario, but we can see that, right? Like people who are really, really committed to the wrong understanding of things. And you're like, you know, the Prophet said, like, don't, may Allah increase you in your, um, passion and don't do it again you know it's like really good that you're really serious about this thing but I hate to break it to you but that's not actually what it means that's not actually the position that we have in the, in the religion or whatever it might be <coughs> they always say that the knowledge is in the, uh, the chest of the people it's not in the lines of the books. Or al that knowledge is taken from the statements of the people of knowledge. But Rijan could be male or female here. Um, and this was kind of like an established concept. So part of what's coming then about this Isnad is that the Isnad, hopefully will signify that the person has taken from other people and there's some level of qualification involved. However, again, we have to be careful to know what the isnad means, know what it means. Um, and that's, I think, where some of the ambiguity of the ijaza model exists. You know, the, the, the university model is a little bit more clear like, I know that if someone went to a university, there's certain classes that they took, there's certain material that they had to study, and they have some sort of examination that checks their understanding, ideally at some level, right? I don't have that in, um, uh, in the ijazah, necessarily, depending on the type of ijazah. Okay. So the conclusion. On the authority of Ali ibn Abi Talib عنه, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, O oh Allah, show mercy on my successors. It was said, O oh Allah's Messenger, and who are your successors? He said, those who relate my accounts and my customs and teach them to my people. And the Prophet وسلم's cousin Ibn Abbas عنه, he said about the Prophet وسلم, that he said, you will hear things, things will be heard from you, and things will be heard from those who hear from you. So, you know, there is an idea of Isnad, there is an idea of Ijazah. Um, they initially, again, were related to Hadith transmission. But later on, when they became used as a means to establish a person's qualification as they are teaching the, uh, the religion. 
uh, I think I should read this part here because it seems to be important and then we'll close with that. We're not going to read the statement of Sheikh uh, Ninawi. You can read that on your own if you like. What we are absolutely certain of is that when it comes to Islamic education, our tradition is to study with qualified teachers proficient in their areas of expertise. This is the same whether or not teachers authorize their students to teach the information imparted to them, or even if those same teachers have not been authorized by their teachers. What is important is qualification to teach, and there is no single method, and definitely not one that God revealed, that must be followed in order to determine a given person's qualification. Yes, it is safer to consult with people who have undergone formal training in some form of institution, but we must be clear that mastery only happens after years or decades of teaching and scholarship. Neither graduation from an institution nor completion of an IFTAT program necessarily determines how well a student has processed and synthesized the information they learned during their schooling. Therefore, our tradition, quote unquote, is to study Islam with qualified instructors, nothing more. The methods of instruction may at times be just as diverse as the methods of assessing proficiency. Furthermore, there is no knowing Islam without knowing the content of scripture, i.e. the Quran and Hadith. Having a sound chain of transmission for what one quotes from the prophetic tradition is what identified the early members of the community as the upholders of orthodoxy. The Isnad served as a means of preserving the substance and quality of the Islamic teachings. It was also utilized to preserve both the Hadith canon and the exegetical works which provide us with content for the many things about which Muslims still today continue to debate. Um, so that's pretty much that. Uh, I think more or less what I wanted to say, I've kind of said in the course of it. Is there an ongoing accountability system or professional development process for ulama? I don't mean that to sound offensive or insulting. I'm genuinely asking. Uh, not really. I don't think so. Um, there's definitely not an accountability system or a professional development system or whatever. That's a very uh, kind of like modern Western model. I'm not saying that it's not good. I'm just saying that it's not something that, well, maybe that's not true. Hmm. Well, when it comes to professional development, the idea is that if you, like any person of knowledge who doesn't consider themselves a talib um, is no longer a person of knowledge. So that would be kind of like the first issue is that if you find a person who's supposedly a scholar and they don't think of themselves as a student of knowledge, then they're not a scholar student of uh, a person of learning is a person of learning from the entirety of their life it doesn't ever change and anyone who's delved into the islamic sciences knows that there's no kind of escape from that it's you know you're just going to spend your whole life in this in this thing and if you don't then 
you know, you have an amana on your own neck that you're not fulfilling. Um, it's also part of why it's important for communities to make sure that they allow space for their religious figures uh, to continue learning, even if it's not a lot, but there, there should be an understanding that um, you must always continue learning. Uh, accountability, it could vary from place to place. I would imagine that there are places where there's, for example, like an Alqaf endowments type system that is organized and not corrupt to the level that like someone can be authorized to teach by the Ministry of Endowments, which is usually religious affairs or whatever. And perhaps that could be taken away as well. Uh, the problem is that there's oftentimes a lot of corruption around that. So, you know, that, that makes it kind of challenging. Mm. Other than that, you know how, you know, we tend to be kind of decentralized in, in these things and in other things. You know, the whole we don't have a Pope in Islam type, type situation. It has its positives and negatives, I guess. But yeah, Anthony. So I was actually going to ask that question about centralization because uh, I, I can't hear you, even though I see your thing going. Oh, can you hear me? Something real quick, sorry. Mm. Can you try again? Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, sorry about that. Aslam Sheikh, uh, thank you kindly. Uh, I was going to ask a question about the, the decentralization because I think it relates to Sanus's question because I feel like um, I, this is probably a little speculative, but I wonder if Sunni Muslims might benefit from a little bit of centralization because we kind of do have an, an authority issue. Um, and I don't necessarily think that centralization fixes all of the issues, but um, I, I kind of feel like the, the decentralized model maybe worked in the pre-modern world, but sometimes I wonder if it's suitable for the way modern nation states are sort of constructed and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. because now we've got issues where you, you've got people that have no business being imams or whatnot in leading communities, leading communities with no oversight and thus all the, the corrupt stuff that you just mentioned and probably even didn't mention can, can happen. So I know it's a little speculative, but, um, but yeah, I, I mean, are, are, is this something that even we could talk about? Like, how do we, even if, even for like, just from like Muslims in America, like a kind of, a, maybe even quasi centralized entity that like, or even, even may not even that big, like more local, like maybe even in California or in SoCal, just like some sort of governing body that has some sort of oversight. Yeah. Um, because what I imagine is back in the day, like that's what communities were for. Like you got a bad imam, they'll like usher him out or whatever, right? You get yeah. a bunch of regulators and you usher him out or whatever, right? But like, we're not, constituted like that in the modern world so right right it's like some of these things first of all i think they did have some level of 
centralization, right? Like if, say for example, you take a place like Cairo. Cairo is going to be pre-modern. Cairo pre-modern, you're going to know who uh, are the major ulama in Azhar. Uh, you're going to know who are the people who hold like judge posts and how they got them and where they fit in the whole hierarchy. Like that scholarly class is going to be generally known by the by the people because, like you said, it's they're living among the people. Like you're working and living and existing in the same neighborhood that there's no modern transportation. I mean, I think sometimes we have to kind of like think about the world without modern transportation and without modern communication, which means that like, imagine you take those couple things away. All of the people that you're gonna be interacting with are people that you can basically walk to. So, when there's problems, they're going to get handled. Things are going to get taken care of. Like people are going to know each other. There's going to be tensions on a communal level that negotiate some of that. And in a sense, also the hierarchy is also going to be a lot more clear, right? Because you're going to see these people interacting with each other. If you're like, if you, um, if you have a court case, you're just going to walk to the court in your neighborhood and the judge is going to sit there and like, you're going to see these interactions. You can walk to Mr. Azhar and you're going to see like, okay, this person is sitting on a chair that's higher than that person. Like you're going to understand these things. Um, and I think they probably did have more centralization. Like there was understanding. This is the Sheikh of the Malikiya. If I have an issue with someone who's a Maliki, I can go to the Sheikh of Malikiya. I can talk to them and so on and so forth. And if that doesn't work, I can go to like my village elder and he can go talk to them. Like there's going to be, different angles to deal with things because people are not going to be as scattered and individualized anyways. Um, that being said, on your question of like, is there something we can do about it? Can we think about it? I think there are ways that we can and that we should. I don't know how they will come into existence, but like, for example, I've heard ideas floated because you can't really force anything in the air. But what you can't, what you could do is you could say, um, this body, for example, is going to agree on certain things. Like you have to have uh, a five-year degree or its equivalent in order to be called a sheikh or an imam, whatever it is, whatever details they're going to agree on, they agree on a set of details. And then on the side of, and then in addition to the formal training. They also can agree on certain details of ethical engagement, you know, like what is what are proper boundaries, what are things that you should do or you shouldn't do, and that can all be public, right? Like anyone who's part of this has this stamp, like almost like a, a um, halal stamp, you know, <laughs> like they're certified, they're they're halal certified that they they've agreed to a certain number of things. And if there is a grievance against them, it can be taken to X, Y, Z and dealt with accordingly. And if their qualification um, can be taken away, then it's taken away or whatever it is. Uh, a sheikh yelp? No, not yelp. <laughs> Something that's actually uh, like objective in a sense. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to end up like those teacher websites, what is it? like rate my teacher. Yeah. Or like any teacher who gives any work ends up bad. <laughs> but, but. Like the, the issue I see is like, we're sort of 
straddled in between like two extremes. And I feel like both of them are not only bad for Muslims, but bad for religion itself. So one is like kind of this free for all that we kind of have now where there's no oversight and people can just get away with, you know, doing whatever and saying whatever. And then on the other hand, you have the state operating everything, which is also bad in my opinion, right? Um, because I believe Dr. Khaled Blankenship uh, said, uh, politics is the realm of compromise and religion is the realm of purity. Mm. You don't necessarily want to, he, he's not even talking about the, the sort of liberal secular, whatever, but he's just like, you don't necessarily want to, you don't, you don't want the state in control of the religion necessarily because, right? So yeah. this is even before, like, the, like I said, the enlightenment or whatever. And so mm. like, I feel like at least in America, it's something we might want to think about and, and like have some solutions for, for the long, for our own sake and like longevity, like in this country. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I know that I've, I've heard these conversations kind of over the last couple of years, especially coming up and stuff. Um, I think some of that is, is definitely necessary because uh, there's just so many issues. <laughs> there's just so many issues. It would, you know, the thing is, is that whoever takes it on, it's going to take a lot of time and it's going to cause a lot of drama because you're going to have people who have been teaching in their communities for 30 years and everyone calls them sheikh and they're not going to qualify. And you're going to have other people who maybe are less known and not dynamic and this and that, and they're going to qualify. And you're going to have to investigate people when things come up and take away their qualifications. And like, <clears throat> you know, but, it, it, but at the same time, it just kind of has to happen. Um, and ideally, Ideally, the people of knowledge, you know, that's something that they do themselves. Uh, I get the feeling that there was some level of that <clears throat> that used to happen. Yeah, like pre-modern? Huh? Like some sort of like self-regulating among the scholarly class? Yeah, I think yeah. that there was probably some level of that that used to happen. But again, you know, we're a lot more isolated than we used to be, actually, in some ways. Um, as people and then on top of it also the endowments were destroyed so that also has its own impact you know like when the scholarly class can be financially stable without external influences then it frees them up to do those kind of things yeah and that's the problem with like the state having issue because if the state gives you the money you got to do what the state says exactly that's that's a big thing that happened with the nationalist movements in the Muslim lands, right? Was that the states were formed and independence was was uh, declared, and part of that was that the endowments were taken under the government, and so then you know that was just a disaster. Are regional shore councils supposed to fulfill that role, the checks and balances, etc.? Whether or not they are, I don't know. I know for sure that they do not. <laughs> <laughs> that much I could say. Whether or not they should do it, uh, Allah Adam, but they certainly do not. 
uh, at least locally. I don't I don't know of any other place where it happens, but it's possible, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> I think that the shorter councils are usually like, it, you could say here, the shorter council is more of a umbrella organization for Muslim organizations. So usually the imams and stuff aren't even really involved. It's the boards, the masjid boards, the you know, so-and-so that are going to these meetings that are engaging with the Shura Council, so on and so forth. They might have like a, a Imam's Council, but the Imam's Council, like everyone's too busy with their own stuff to really engage with it in any sort of serious way. So, you know, uh, is it possible perhaps, but I, I don't, I, I think it wouldn't, it would have to be like a local, a regional Imam's Council or a region. I, I don't like to use Imam's because then it, uh, excludes women, but like it would have to be a, a regional council of religious teachers or instructors or whatever it might be. And that would have to um, kind of fulfill that role because the other thing is that it's hard to, it's hard for non-religious teachers to oversee religious teachers. And this is an ongoing problem that we have also in our institutions is how, how do we even do that? <laughs> and, uh, it just gets really messy. How would you qualify a Sheikh Jamal? Question mark. Um, God. So I've gone through some changes on this one, maybe you could say. Like, so I'll, I'll start with the easy, the easy part. The easy part would be to say, that I used to use Sheikh or Sheikha for someone who's essentially finished the equivalent of like a six, seven year program. So like the traditional Dars Nizami program in the subcontinent is seven years, five years in the rushed version. Um, if you go to Azhar, you have to do Arabic and prep first, you have to do the high school at least one year and you have to do four years of college so it's basically six years. Um, so it's you know something around like a six seven year program if someone did that, I would generally call them Sheikh. Out of my own accord, however, if someone was known to have that title in the community, I usually wouldn't like refer to them otherwise just out of respect. Um, Mm. And then I would use Ustad or Ustada for someone who's gone through a Islamic studies program that's not to that level, like maybe a two-year program. Basically, they've done at least two years, whether they're continuing or not. Um, however, and then I would also like add to it that if I if I I have to not know of any reason to like suspect misconduct or something like that from them. Then I would give them that title as well. However, with time, I kind of like, don't really feel the same about it. I even people seven years, eight years, nine years, 10 years. If I don't really feel like they're a sheikh, I don't like to call them a sheikh. It's weird. It's, it became more of an issue of like, in addition to the qualifications, uh, I don't know, some people, you just don't get that feel from them. Like, okay, fine, we just... Um, and because I think sometimes a, a lot, like traditionally, 
Sheikh was often used also for a person who gives people tarbiyah, who gives them like spiritual training and rectification and so on. Not in addition to the outward sciences, they've also mastered the inward sciences and help people in their journey. Um, and so for that reason, I've also become a little bit more conservative on it, on like who I kind of think of in that way. But again, sometimes I, I, I give people the title just out of like public discourse and, um, you know, they've been an imam for 20 years and everyone calls them sheikh. And even if I think that, you know, not really so happy with, <laughs> with their, their learning and their academic integrity and stuff like that, I won't, you know, make an issue out of it unless uh, I, I, I know of some sort of misconduct from them, then I won't call them sheikh, irregardless of what the people think. So, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of in process. <clears throat> how would I, but like, all of that aside, how would I qualify a sheikh? Someone who's old, someone who has a lot of experience, someone who has a lot of knowledge, and someone whose character reflects the character of the Prophet That would be my actual definition. You know. And then the rest of us were just uh, somewhere on route, maybe, maybe off route, maybe took the exit too early, whatever it might be. Hmm. Anyone else have any comments or anything? This is interesting. I like when you guys ask questions and engage. And... Uh, may I ask another question, Shay? Yes. So what happens or can it happen that you find someone, uh, I guess you might say like a teacher because they embody certain prophetic attributes, but they're not Muslim? Interesting. Uh, so you find them as a teacher, even though they're not Muslim. Yeah. Like for example, you know, my mother and grandmother were Catholic, but mm -hmm. you know, the way that they live their lives, I mean, and the things that they used to say, mm -hmm. um, you would think they were Muslim. Mm -hmm. I mean, they obviously weren't, they're Catholic, but, right. and I guess I carry that with me, even though. And I still consider them like my greatest teachers in terms of my relationship with Allah, but they weren't Muslim, right? So mm -hmm. is that a possibility? I mean, obviously like they don't know anything about the religion or whatever, but right, so. I mean, I think someone could even know something about the religion and that could still be the case. Um, I mean, in the end, the wisdom is the, is the lost treasure of the believer, right? Everyone is our teacher. Um, there's these stories like in, and everyone and every, everything is our teacher. There's a story that comes to mind of like uh, some, some scholar when he was young and I, I forget the details of it, but you'll get the gist of it. Like he, he was young and he, he was getting really frustrated with his studies and he wanted to give up. And then he looked and he saw this ant that was carrying something that was like really huge. 
and the ant kept trying to go up the the incline and it kept falling and going but it kept going kept going until finally it accomplished its goal and he was like i'm not going to give up so he learned from the ant right um let alone human beings who have wisdom who have a connection to the divine even if we may not agree on some of the details theologically they do have some sort of connection to the divine um, they may have done their best in trying to understand what that connection should look like. And they're drawing upon probably like very deeply true elements of uh, previous revelations and scriptures and stuff. I mean, for sure, these people can have wisdom and they can have knowledge that we learn from them and ways that we, we benefit from them and so on. Um, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about, about, Islam is that we, we do believe that we can benefit from so many different people uh, while differing perhaps on, you know, not your particular, your particular example on the side, but like maybe there's people we differ with, we disagree with, we, and we can still benefit things from them. We can still learn from them. Um, and they can be some of our greatest teachers and, um, and along on them what their fate is with God. <clears throat> you know, Allahu Alam on that. But I feel like especially some of the old generation people, they really had some, uh, they, how do I say it? Like they, they understood some of the deep realities of life. And uh, there's a lot to learn from that. There's a lot to learn from that. So Allahu Alam, I mean, the short answer to your question i would say yes <laughs> i would say yes they can i think that's one of the beauties of revelation too is that it gives you a standard so once i have a standard i don't have to engage with everything else from a position of fear right like i i know what my standard is so if someone is functioning in a way that is acceptable in my standard, then like I can benefit from them for sure. And learn from them, maybe they have, um, they know how to deal with trial and they know how to deal with hardship and they have resilience and they have patience and they have like a, a beautiful way of surviving. And, um, you know, that's necessarily going to be the case with certain populations in the US for sure, because All righty. Well, I guess we will conclude. I don't think, again, I don't think we'll be meeting again before the end of, before next year. So for this particular day, obviously Tuesday I still have, but uh, this coming Tuesday. But if not, we will see you when we see you. Inshallah, please, if you can come to our event on the 19th, it would be great. As many people can come as possible for the end of the year gathering and recap and uh, get together. It would be nice to see people. And um, yeah, there it is. Majlisreunion.eventbrand.com. Thank you, Ahna.
And until then, we just keep asking what someone sent me a message today. And uh, I responded to it and I told him, give my salam to, to your son. And he said, uh, my son says salam. And he asked, when do we get to come to the majlis again? And, you know, told him that's the question all of us are wondering. But inshallah, uh, those days will return, hopefully soon. Hopefully these vaccines will bring some sort of benefit and we will all come out of this wiser and aqrab uh, in Allah closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Barakallahu feekum. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa an astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk wa al-asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-lazina amanu wa amanu al-salihat wa tawasubu al-haqqi wa tawasubu al-salihat. Jazakum Allahum khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.